I'm also going to read a few verses uh, preceding this uh, passage, beginning at verse 19. So let's start at Matthew 6, verse 19. And there Jesus speaks as follows. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And then begins the text. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So far, the reading of the word. Dear brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, In this passage that we have before us this afternoon, the Lord Jesus addresses a problem that is truly universal among human beings. Maybe not among children, but certainly among adult human beings. There is a universal problem among human beings, a problem of fear and anxiety. Ever since people turned away from God in the Garden of Eden and rebelled against the God of life, Life in a fallen world has been full of perils, and these perils generate no end of anxiety in our hearts. And here in Matthew 6, the Lord Jesus Christ identifies some of the things that people most commonly do worry about. He speaks in the first place about food anxiety. Getting food on the table has been a concern for human beings uh, through the generations, a concern for people to feed themselves. If they have children, then they have a concern to feed their children. To have food on the table is an age-old concern for everyone. Over the last six months or so, we've heard increasingly in in the newspapers and in the news broadcasts a lot about supply chain problems. 
Maybe you've seen pictures on TV of store shelves being empty, certain products no longer being available to you. And maybe it just, it just created a little bit of a, of a concern in your heart, and you thought to yourself, perhaps, what if it actually happened that I needed some flour and there wasn't any flour in the stores? And what if it happened, I, I needed some new cooking oil and there wasn't any cooking oil. I needed some milk and there wasn't any. I needed some cheese and I thought I would just go to the store like I always did and, and there wasn't any cheese in the store. Perhaps you're a practical person and you've seen those stories about supply chain problems and, and so you thought to yourself, you know, this is the year I'm going to do it. This is the year I'm going to bite the bullet, going to plow out the backyard, going to plant vegetables, I'm going to grow some of my own food, I'm going to buy some chickens and learn how to raise chickens, and I'm going to raise rabbits, maybe, like some people in this end of the valley like to do. Or maybe you're, maybe you're the kind of person who thought, you know, uh, even if there's no more beef in the store, there, there's always elk and moose in the forest, so I'm going to go and get my pal, and I'm going to get my hunting license, and I'm going to take care of this food supply problem myself. Well, in the time of the Lord Jesus Christ, food security was actually a much bigger problem than any of us have ever experienced. And you can understand why that was the case. People didn't have freezers. They didn't have fridges. They didn't know how to vacuum seal things in tin cans. They didn't have a fantastic distribution system involving tens of thousands of trucks that could bring you beautiful things from 3,000 kilometers away in just a few days that we're used to. We're used to having lettuce in the middle of winter. We're used to being able to buy whatever fruit and vegetables we want regardless of the time of the year or the season. But in the time of Jesus, it wasn't so. In the time of the Lord Jesus, if your local crops failed, that was a really big problem. And sometimes people would have enough left over from the previous year to, to maybe barely make it through a year of bad crops, a year without any wheat, a year without any barley, a year without any figs, a year without any grapes. Maybe people could survive one year, one season of life without new crops. But if the crops failed twice, well, that was an unmitigated disaster. And the Old Testament speaks about that a lot, the unmitigated disaster of a famine, the unmitigated disaster of, of a locust plague, or something like that. And even when you had your crops harvested and stored away, you still weren't really in the clear because they could still be destroyed by rodents and bugs and fungi and bacteria and what have you. Along with food, water was also um, a much bigger concern for people in the time of Jesus than it ever is for us. We're very accustomed to just turning on a tap and having water that's pure enough to drink. None of us worry about getting upset stomach from the water that we get from our taps. We just assume it's safe to drink and that it will always be there. And we would be profoundly shocked if one day we turned on the tap and there was no water. But in the time of Jesus, this was more common. In a, rainy, in a rainy season, they were fine, but in a season of less rain, uh, wells could run dry. Certainly local creeks would run dry. There were very few lakes in Israel, as you know, very few ponds. And so people were very dependent on the rains, not just for their food, but also for their drinking supply. 
Last year we had a heat dome here in the Fraser Valley. We didn't have rain for a few months and we saw what happened. Crops suffered a lot. And, and you could imagine that if you didn't have all these pipes going through the grounds carrying water to your houses, you would have been in quite the pickle. You would have probably had to get tanker trucks and go down to the Fraser River and load them up and bring them right here into town and everybody could come and get water. But in Palestine, the land where Jesus lived, a water supply was always a challenge. And so no wonder people worried about food. And no wonder they worried in the time of Jesus about what they would drink. Jesus addresses those concerns here. He also addresses a concern that was more common then than now, and that's a concern about clothing. It would be interesting to do a survey, maybe after church, and just kind of get a sense of how many changes of clothing people have these days. I wouldn't be surprised if some of you have literally dozens of changes of clothing. But in the time of the Lord Jesus and the apostles, it was pretty rare for anybody to have more than two sets of clothing. And a lot of the poor people had only one set of clothing. And so when you went to bed, you washed your clothing, and then you hung it up to dry, and in the morning you put it on again, the same clothing of the day before. It's really interesting to go to old houses in this area, really old houses where I used to live in Huntington. There were a couple of houses about 120 years old, and I had a tour of one once, and the closets were this wide, literally this wide, because that's all the clothing people had. They didn't need a big closet like this. They didn't need a walk-in closet because they hardly had any clothes. And at the time of Christ, it was even more so. Clothing was very precious. It took an enormous amount of work to create clothing. You had to first uh, get the wool from the sheep, and then you had to spin it into thread, and then you had to weave it into fabric, and then you had to cut the fabric and sew it into cloth and, and make your clothing. And a lot of work went into it. Stealing clothing was a very common crime. From We know that from other sources in the New Testament period. The clothing wears out really fast if you're working in the fields all day or at your trade. And so if you were a homemaker in the first century, the time of the Lord, one of the biggest jobs you had was just to keep your family clothed. Couldn't go to the store and, and buy cheap clothes made in Taiwan or Singapore or China. It just wasn't available to you. Now, if we think about our, our situation today, we would say be, beyond food and drink and clothing, we also worry about shelter. Well, those people did in the time of Jesus as well. Without shelter from the cold and the rain of winter and without shelter from the heat of summer, life is very difficult. Many of you are quite deeply concerned about the cost of housing in, in this part of the world. We wonder how young families will ever get established, how young individuals can ever purchase a home or even in a, a condo. Sometimes you see homeless people and you wonder, is, is that something that I have to be concerned about for myself or my family? And maybe you think that's completely crazy, but I actually talked to someone this past Friday evening who comes from what we would call a completely normal middle-class family with a secure job, and he was in the position with his wife and children of truly being at a complete loss of where they would be living. And it was an act of God that allowed them to find a place to live. That's happening here in the Fraser Valley amongst people in our Reformed community. 
Maybe you've heard about inflation concerns lately. You wonder about how you can preserve your savings if you have any. If you just leave them in the bank, uh, it'll be eviscerated by inflation. inflation. How do you guard yourself against inflation? How do you get some financial security? And so we can go on. We can talk about the specifics that Jesus mentioned, food and drink and clothing. We can add shelter as a basic human need about which we have concerns. We can, we can think about our, our job security, our relational security, all kinds of securities that we have issues with. And if you trace them all back to their fountainhead, ultimately what we're concerned about is losing our lives. Really, that's behind all of it, isn't it? We're concerned about losing our lives. Why are we concerned about food and clothing and shelter in the home? Because, well, without those, it's really hard to live. So we might die. Well, in face of all these human fears that Jesus identifies and on which we can elaborate a little bit, what, is, what does Christ say we ought to do with all these human fears? These very reasonable human fears, actually, if you think about it. Well, the answer of, of our text is very simple. The Lord Jesus tells us to lose our fears completely. He says very directly, have no fear. Lose your anxiety, have no fear. Don't worry about food. Don't worry about clothing. Don't worry about drink. Don't worry about shelter. Don't worry about your job. Don't worry about your savings. Don't worry even about your life. Have no anxiety about your life. Don't be anxious about today. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. Don't be anxious, period, about your life. It sounds incredibly idealistic. I don't think any one of us have lived one day, unless we're children, in the last year without some kind of anxiety, either right on the top of our mind or in the background of our consciousness. And so you might think, is Jesus for real here? Is this, is this even possible to live like this, to truly live without being anxious? Well, to understand how the Lord Jesus comes to this statement to not be anxious, we do need to notice the context of his remarks. And please note that our passage begins with the word, therefore. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. So Jesus is building a conclusion here on what he was saying just before this. And what was he talking about just before this? Well, he was talking about where is your treasure? He was talking about how you can serve God and mammon. He was talking about not laying up for yourself treasures on earth. If we summarize verses 19 through 24 of this passage, we can say, in, in this section, the Lord Jesus Christ is warning against materialism. He's showing us the danger of loving our stuff and our money and putting our trust in what we can see instead of in the unseen promises of our God. Jesus warns his people very seriously in verses 19 through 24 that you cannot serve God and mammon. It's a really interesting connection in the Aramaic language which Jesus spoke between the word mammon and our English word amen, which is actually an Aramaic word too. So if you want to learn Aramaic, don't be so threatened. I just taught you two Aramaic words, mammon and, am and amen. 
So the word mammon has to do with what you consider to be true and certain. If you worship mammon, what do you consider to be true and certain? Well, what you can see and what you can touch and what you can count, especially in your bank account, that's what you're putting your trust in. Whereas when you say amen at the end of a prayer, what you're saying is, I don't put my trust in all those things I can count and see and touch, but I put my trust in the living God who has made promises to me and my security in life is in, in the power of those divine promises which are preached to me and which are sealed to me in my baptism and which we celebrate when we have communion together in the church. So Jesus is saying we need to make a choice between mammon and amen to God's promises. Well, when people do make that choice, and of course, the Lord Jesus is urging us to make the right choice. When we say no to mammon, and we say yes to God's promises, and we find our security in those promises, then it makes perfect sense that Jesus follows up immediately by saying, do not be anxious about anything. If you are unreservedly putting your trust in your God who loves you, and has bound himself to you with incredible promises and says to you, you can count on me because I'm a God who doesn't lie. I'm a God who's faithful. I stand behind my promises. I stand behind them. I will never deviate from, from those promises. If you're holding on to those promises, dear brothers and sisters, it makes perfect sense that Jesus would say to you, do not be anxious about anything. What have you going to be anxious about when you were holding the hand of that extraordinary God who loves you with steadfast love and faithfulness and is, is bound to you. He's bound to you in his covenant of grace. And so if you want to look at the root cause of anxiety, which is growing in our society, and I, I want to make clear here just for a moment that I'm not talking here and Jesus is not talking about what Today, we would call clinical anxiety or uh, as, as a mental health challenge disorder. Jesus isn't talking about people who have that kind of anxiety. He's talking about the generic anxiety that affects the whole human race. And if you want to know the root cause of that generic anxiety, you have to look to idolatry. Idolatry, the first commandment that we heard this afternoon says, you shall have no other gods before me. And the Catechism explains this commandment by, by telling us it's really all about trust. First commandment is about where is our trust? Are we trusting the living God, the creator of heaven and earth, who is our redeemer in Jesus Christ? Or are we trusting something else? Uh, the biblical word for trust has a connotation of what you're leaning on. So you can lean on this thing here, this lectern, and if I lean on it, I guess I have the confidence that it will bear my weight. And so the biblical word for trust has that sense of you can lean on it and it won't disappoint you. It will, it will bear up the weight of your confidence. And so trusting God or trusting idols is the question really behind Matthew 6, verse 25 and following. If you put your trust in an idol then your anxiety will be high. Is it any surprise that as our society abandons its Christian heritage, 
as more and more people walk away from the churches, as more and more people uh, forsake the living God, is it any surprise that anxiety is growing by leaps and bounds, even to the point that it's a huge problem in elementary schools? Is that any surprise to any of us? If you're putting your trust in government, well, that's going to disappoint you. Government can't really provide security. Maybe you put your trust in your finances. Well, you'll find out sooner or later that they can't really give you security either. People look to science. They look to technology. They look to politics. They look to their diet. They look to physical fitness routines. They look to their social life. People are finding their confidence or anyway looking for their confidence in in all kinds of places other than with the Lord. But the problem is, really, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Nothing in creation, no creational uh, institution, no societal institution can give you security. And because of this, people face a vicious cycle. They give their devotion to money or stuff or mammon or whatever other idol they're serving, and they find out that this this loyalty they have doesn't generate the kind of security that they're looking for and so they figure the problem must be that they're not giving it their best and so they redouble their efforts they double down on their devotion you might say to their idol and that generates even more anxiety and it's this never-ending vicious cycle this downward spiral into not just anxiety but what goes beyond that despair so it is that we do live in a world with huge amounts of idolatry-generated anxiety because the false gods to which our society is devoted, they cannot give what they promise. They cannot give security. And so to save us, to save us anxiety and to enable us to thrive, the Lord Jesus Christ pushes us away from the idols And he wants to push us right into the arms of our God, our God of whom Jesus reminds us repeatedly, who is a God of steadfast love and faithfulness, a God who is devoted to you as a father is devoted to his children. Jesus would say, why are you anxious about your life when your life is God's gift to you? God gave you your life. Do you think he doesn't know you as his child to whom he has given life? Why are you anxious when the God who gave you life has also redeemed your life in Jesus Christ? One of the beautiful uh, testimonies of the New Testament is that Christ is life. John 1 verse 1 says that in him the word was life. Jesus Christ is life. He is the possessor of life, and not only so, he is the giver of life. He's given you life. That's what it means to be a Christian. You are a person to whom Jesus Christ has given life. John 3, verse 15 says that whoever believes in him, that is Christ, may have eternal life. Or John 3, verse 16, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. You have God as your creator who gave you life. You have Jesus Christ, your redeemer, 
who restores your life, who regenerates your life through his blood and spirit. You have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you who applies to you the life that is Christ. Well, if you have this life in Christ and you're confident about this life that you have in Christ, if you understand that having life in Christ is not some kind of pleasant metaphor, but is reality, you actually have life in Christ through faith in the gospel promises. If you know that, you count on that. If that is the center of your existence, then you can understand that Jesus says to you this afternoon, have no anxiety about anything because you are connected to Christ, who is life. You have life, eternal life, life that can never end, life that can never be broken by anything, not by food scarcity, not by housing problems, not by a rogue government, not by loss of freedoms, not by war. Nothing can interrupt that life that you have received through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see why Jesus says to his disciples here, life is more than food, and life is more than clothing. To know God through faith in his son Jesus Christ, that is life. And that life is more than food and drink and clothing and shelter. And so you already have the more you have that life, the more, the greater thing. And so why are you fretting about the lesser, the food and the drink, the clothing, the shelter, and your investments and what have you? And to drive home his points, the Lord Jesus Christ gives us in this passage a couple of wonderful illustrations. He points first to the birds of the air. He says, take a good look at those birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you, you my disciples to whom I have given life, are you not of much more value than those sparrows or crows or even starlings that you may see? The Psalms of the Old Testament speak a lot about how God feeds his creatures, how he feeds the birds. Psalm 147 says that God even feeds the ravens, which is pretty interesting because ravens are unclean animals in the Old Testament. And yet the psalmist says God feeds them too. He has a care for those symbolically, liturgically unclean animals. Well, if God cares for the unclean ravens, if, if you touched an unclean raven, you were unclean. If you ate it, you were unclean. God cares even about those crows, we might say, well, then, then surely he cares about you as people who are clean in his blood. He cares about you far more than he cares about the ravens. And when it comes to clothing, um, the Lord Jesus Christ has something to say about that too. He says, why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Solomon had more clothing than average Jews. Obviously, he was the king. He had beautiful royal robes that impressed everybody, even the Queen of Sheba. And yet Jesus says, you know, you can go out in the fields outside of Capernaum 
and see a common field flower and you will see something more glorious than, than even Solomon arrayed in his royal splendor. And so today we would say you can go to the best clothing shops in Vancouver or, or go to New York, a fashion center, and go to Paris if you like, if you've got the funds, and go to the best stores and buy the, the most trendy clothing, but you, you can't hold a candle to a beautiful flower of the field. Well, that's how God deals with flowers that are here today and tomorrow are dried up by the sun and burn in the oven. You think he doesn't have a concern about your clothing? Doesn't he know about your clothing needs? Doesn't he know about your food needs and your water needs and your shelter needs? If, if God is bestowing that kind of care upon ravens and upon flowers of the field, how much more care do you think he will bestow upon you whom he has given life? in Jesus Christ. You know, we have been through some real crises in the last two years, and we may face more of them. You know, maybe we had the assumption that at one time that we would just enjoy a nice steady life until we get old, and then we fade away into the sunset, and we just enjoy peace all of our lives. Well, we know that some of our ancestors didn't have lives like that. They went through war and they went through the depression of the 20s and the Dust Bowl of the 30s, and they went through World War II after that. These are people who live amongst us who have experienced these things. So what were we thinking that, that our lives would just be this nice, steady, you know, walk? We've had a crisis year. We've had two crisis years, and maybe more crises will come. We don't know. We don't know what tomorrow brings. We literally don't know. Even our very best prognosticators, they don't know. All they can do is try to project a little bit from current trends, and most of the time they're wrong. Have you noticed how often economic projectors' projections are wrong? Do you notice how often the government's projections of national finances are wrong? There's so many things people don't know about tomorrow. We don't know about tomorrow. But there may be more crises. And the thing about a crisis dear brothers and sisters, is that it has a way of uncovering what's in your heart. You know, we can hide that for periods of time, what's in our heart. But when there's a crisis, it somehow brings out what's inside. And maybe that's been the good thing of the last two years. The crisis has brought to light some of our deepest motives and our deepest impulses and our deepest desires our wants and our needs, and has exposed them all to the light and the judgment of God. Perhaps this whole crisis, I don't even really want to use the term, but I have to. Perhaps this whole COVID crisis and, and all the related actions of various levels of government, maybe it was just meant by the Lord to expose the shallowness of our trust in him in order that we might repent and be deepened in our trust in him. Perhaps God saw that his people were not choosing radically for him in daily life. Perhaps God saw that his people were not truly resting the entire weight of their human life upon his promises. The promises we receive in preaching, promises we receive in baptism and in the Lord's Supper, Maybe God saw that his 
his people, to whom he's revealed his grace, were not resting fully and exclusively. That's a very important word in, in the life of faith, exclusively upon him. And that's what God desires. God desires that we as people would put our trust in God alone. Think of Psalm 62. The word alone plays a major role in Psalm 62. In God alone I put my trust. And so perhaps God saw that we were not putting our trust in God alone. And therefore the Lord intervened. You know that everything God does is ultimately for the sake of the church. So this COVID crisis and all the related measures is ultimately for the sake of the church. And you can make it that way you want. But I am convinced that everything that happens in history is for the sake of the church. And so we need to ask the question, what good can come out of the crisis of the last two years? And a lot of good would come if we subject ourselves to the searing scrutiny of God's holy word and allow it to bring out what truly is in the depths of our hearts. What are we trusting? Are we trusting the Lord? Are we trusting our bank accounts? Are we trusting the Lord? Are we trusting our company? Are we trusting the Lord? Are we trusting our farm, our business, our career trajectory? What are we really trusting? And God is greatly offended when his people are not trusting in him alone. And God will do anything, including wrecking the economy, in order to shock his people back into a relationship of deepened trust. God is honored when his people trust in God alone. And so um, to, to um, use the language of a certain author, a certain author wrote a book called Don't, Don't Waste Your Cancer. Maybe I can riff off of that and say, don't waste the COVID crisis of the last two years. You know how that would be wasted? It would be wasted if we all said, great, back to normal. And God says, no, 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 no. We don't want to go back to normal. We don't want anything to do with normal. We want to do with growing, deepening, radicalized trust in the living God. And none of this normal stuff, please. If you just want to go back to normal and you're just so happy that you can have normality, then the whole crisis has been wasted on you. Just like some people's cancer is wasted on them because it doesn't actually cause them to rethink their deepest priorities and their deepest convictions. Christ puts it like this in verse 33 of this passage. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Not second, not third, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. What does that mean? Well, seeking the kingdom of God means that you want the kingdom of God to be manifest in your life. And how is the kingdom of God manifested in your life? It's manifested in your life when you are submitting to the king. When you are submitting to the king, then the kingdom of God is manifesting itself in your life. When you're submitting to the will of the king, the command of the king, the word of the king, when you're displaying the righteousness of the king, that's what it means to seek the kingdom of God first. And so the first priority of your life is not food. first priority of your life is not water, clothing, shelter, job, career security, financial security. The first priority of your life is, God, I want your kingdom to show up in my life. 
I want your kingdom to show up in everything I think, everything I feel. I want it to show up in all my emotional reactions. I want it to show up in how I raise my family, how I do business, how we do church together, how we have relationships, how we do marriage, how we do friendship. I want the kingdom of God, the style of the king, to be manifested in everything that I do and in everything that I am. And congregation, if that is your deepest desire, if you can say before God, this is what I want more than anything, more than anything I want to be a faithful citizen of the kingdom of heaven, then Jesus says to you, well, if that's So when you were living for the King, Jesus Christ, the King who loved you, the King who gave himself up for you, who died on the cross for you, when you are saying, I want my, my entire life to be about that King and his commands and his righteousness and his holiness, then God says, I'll take care of the food part and I'll take care of the shelter part. I'll take care of the clothing part. Indeed, I'll take care of all your earthly needs as you seek first my kingdom and its righteousness. And so with all these things in mind, you can understand how also the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4, and I'd like to end with that, can say in verse 6, he says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and then you will experience the peace that is beyond all understanding. Dear brothers and sisters, may that peace be yours as you seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. Amen. Let us sing together about how God keeps his people in all circumstances of life. Psalm 121, let us sing all the stanzas. <laughs>